Well, welcome everybody again to City Life Suffolk. Good to see all your faces. Maybe one of your first few times here or you've been here since the launch. It's good to see all of you. Matter of fact, speaking of the launch, it's been last weekend was the the beginning of the seventh month as the church. So that was exciting, low-key, right? I, I knew it in my head. I was like, all right, starting the seventh month. And then Steph and I took off this past week for our six-year wedding anniversary. Um, how many of you guys went to the uprising last night in Newport News, right? A lot of our youth did. Um, we, we were the youth pastors who ran that every year, so we didn't get to celebrate our anniversary, like, since our marriage. So we took off last week. Uh, we uh, didn't watch any movies. On vacation, read a lot of books, but that gladiator preview or the little ominous announcement there makes me want to watch that. I got to preach at the men's retreat, and that's the theme, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, watch that on company time. Maybe in my office, be like, hey, Fred, don't knock. I'm watching gladiator. It's called research, but I'm excited for the men's retreat. You should go, ladies. The brunch is next Saturday, and then the men's retreat following after that. Make sure you get out there. Uh, I'll hit you with many reasons tonight in my sermon why you should be there, Um, but we did have our six-year wedding anniversary this past week. And I think every year we ask each other, you know, I mean, I should be applauding y'all. Most of y'all, we're looking to y'all and your marriages, how to do it and how to do it well. We love you guys. But uh, every year we ask each other, like, does it feel like it was yesterday or does it feel like we've been married forever? And I feel like the longer we're married, the more it's like, I don't really remember ever doing life without my spouse. I don't remember you never be, not being right here, the, the longer we're married. And it seems like God's taking us on a lot of roads already in our marriage. Even just for example, I didn't just take comic books and commentaries on vacation. I took a, a book on India. It was a children's book, lots of pictures, but you know, you can learn a lot in those. Went to the library, ladies like, what are you doing back here? I was like, where are the books on India? So I brought one of those. I brought a book on adoption. And uh, hey guys, good news, I finished Lord of the Rings. So those were, uh, Quotes were popping up just about every sermon. Some of y'all were getting tired of it. Some of y'all were inspired. But just to close it out, Wayne Thomason challenged me on Facebook a few weeks ago, posted a bunch of quotes, someone from Aragon and Legolas, and he's like, where's Gimli at, right? Where's the dwarf? So here's a quote just to start our thoughts tonight. Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. And we're actually going to tie this in tonight because, again, even just Look at the microcosm of Stephanie's marriage. We've already had ups and downs, peaks, valleys, uh, nights and days spiritually and, and in our marriage. And, and you look at your walk following God, it's the same way. You prove your faithfulness years down the road. You prove your commitment in those seasons when everything actually isn't going your way. And I think with God's callings and his purposes in our life, we talked about this a little bit last week, that if we knew that everything would go hunky-dory, be peachy keen all the way through, we'd step out onto that road. If we had this assurance that everything was going to go well. And I think you look at the, the life of Ezra, as we did last week, and his setup as this pagan, secular king, right, says to him, hey, I want you to go back. Not only am I encouraging you to go back, I'm going to fund you to go back to Jerusalem with your people and start to rebuild it. And he walks in such favor. And it says again and again in the book of Ezra that the hand of the Lord was upon him. And again, I think if we knew we had this setup or we had this this great assurance of faith that I know God's hand is upon me, I know his faithfulness goes before me, his goodness and mercy follow me, if we could walk in greater faith knowing that, we would walk in our purpose more and more every day. But you might ask, how can I rest assured 
that his hand rests upon me. And Ezra actually spells that out for us in one of the instances where it says the hand of the Lord was upon him. Immediately after that, it says in Ezra 7 verse 10 that this was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. So we dug deep into this verse last weekend, and we talked about how we're all called as followers of God to determine, to discover, to demonstrate, and declare, to study, obey, and to teach. But again, because pastors have alliteration addictions, it's discover, demonstrate, and declare. As you know, I think we often for ourselves, we'll make goals of those first two. I'll study God's word. I'm going to try to apply it. I'm going to try to obey, and eventually I'll cross the finish line. Right? It's like the peeling away of addiction and the pressing into God's truth. Or as Paul puts it, as we read last week in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You know, there's a whole lot of analogies you'll hear with races and our walk with Christ. You know, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You can also say it's not just 100 meters. It's got a lot of hurdles along the way or obstacle courses, right? Amy's rocking her Spartan shirt. She ran one this morning and then got back for church. So props for that. Props for that. I heard she placed well, as, as did Jason. Is Jason even in here? All I know is if we ever, like, have to submit ninja warriors or something, we got the kernies, or if stuff really goes bad and revelations start, all those prophecies, and we, there's like a Hunger Games where we got to submit two voluntolds, they will be our tributes. You will be voluntold as tributes, the kernies. They're our hope. Zombie apocalypse hits, they're on my team. All that said, <laughs> the Spartan race, rugged maniac, whatever the obstacle race of your choice is, life can be like that sometimes. There will be obstacles that we're called to overcome in our following of Christ. But it's also a lot like a three-legged race or a, a, a many-legged race. You know, the life we're called to live in the church should be a many-legged race because it's not just about me crossing the finish line. Like we looked at last week, all those over 50 verses in the New Testament that talk about one another or each other, we realize that we're called to cross the finish line together. And you know, part of that's to our benefit. Taking literally like three-legged race for 26.2 miles, I'd rather kill myself than try to do that. But running in a, a crowd, it fuels you. I have run a couple marathons, and I learned in my first one that when you're surrounded by hundreds and thousands of people, the beginning of a 26.2-mile race, it's easy to go out way too fast <laughs> because you're just around people and you're charged up. It even happened, it was, I think, last week or maybe the week before because we were on vacation last week where there's a path that's four miles near our house and it goes by Deep Creek, the high school. And, and I was out on that run in the afternoon and there were other students out there. And I was like, all right, I'm going to beat all y'all, right, because I'm competitive to a fault. And I did. I smoked him and I stroked my ego. But it was because they were out there that I ran faster on that run than I had in many previous. And you talk about competitiveness, talk about competition. How many of you guys watched the Olympics, the track and field competition? Usain Bolt just making everybody look foolish. But I remember I turned on the TV. I didn't get a chance to watch a ton, but there was the 10,000-meter race. And they were doing a special on one of the runners named Muhammad Farah and a fellow Olympian, uh, Gallen Rupp. And they were training together. They were training with others. And uh, they were pushing each other. They built this camaraderie 
And then I was confused because as they cut to live television, again, I'm competitive to a fault. I was like, wait, Pharaoh runs for Britain and Rupp runs for USA. You can train together? Like, you would do that? Like, just because I'm so competitive, it blew my mind. And yet the church is similar. I might not share the same background with this person. My lifestyle might be different. I may not look like them. We may not enjoy the same hobbies. We may not have the same specific calling, yet somehow together we're stronger when we run this race and follow Christ. There's a man named Kevin Hansen that runs an elite group of runners in the Midwest. Many of them are professional. And he did this interview, and he said that he and his brother got the idea for the elite team when they had begun asking why American performances had declined so much in the 90s from the golden days of the 70s and 80s. And what they realized is that back in the day, they used to train in groups. But in the 90s, distance runners began training on their own with the guidance of a coach. And Americans were no longer among the best in the world. We started to see a decline in the sport, Hansen said. The countries whose distance runners were the best Ethiopia, Kenya, and Japan, they all emphasized training in groups, he noted. You say, wait a minute. We were most successful in the U.S. when we trained in groups. The three most successful countries in the world are doing group training, Hansen said. There must be a message there. Well, we know the message in Scripture is clear. That's that our race is not a solo one. You know, 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen one, a royal priest, a holy person, a soul belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Not you read that wrong on purpose. It doesn't say that. What it does say is that you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wondrous light. See, we aren't called to run the race solo. We're called to link arms. But I think instead of Linking arms and overcoming hurdles. So often we as the church can link arms and just form holy huddles. You know, tomorrow there will be a lot of football games and all the men said, amen. Thank you. We had our moment. And in those games there will be a lot of huddles. And I don't gamble on the outcome of sports. And, uh, but I can tell you one thing. And you can take this to the bank. This is a check that I can write that you can cash. Is that the, it, the team that doesn't break the huddle will lose. Safe to bet that if they don't break the huddle, they'll lose. And the huddle is important in football. You, you come together to, if you want to sound churchy, to receive the vision and run with it, right? What route am I running? What am I doing here? And it's important. It's vital. It's vital for the, the group. But they got to break that huddle to do anything. The church is the same way. This service is vital. Coming together is vital to link arms with one another, worship with one another, build relationship that forms accountability and encouragement. But at some point, we got to break the huddle. The team that doesn't break the huddle will lose. And a church that never breaks the huddle will lose. Most Christians, we think of the word ministry. We think of the ministries that happen on the weekend, like the kids' ministry, worship ministry, usher ministry, all of these important, vital ministries in a church or the teaching ministry. But you know, teaching, it's not tied down to a pulpit. And you talk about the teaching the church is called to do. The ministry and teaching of a church is not contained to a pulpit. It shouldn't be contained by four walls. And if it's not going past those four walls, then it's not declaring. The word declare in 1 Peter 2.9, it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And it means to proclaim to those without what has taken place within. 
Essentially, if it's only being shared within your huddle, within the four walls, then it's not really being declared. Can you think of some famous declarations in the past? You want, one for one, we can go from there. Declaration of independence. Sorry, anybody? To be or not to be. We'll bring it back to Wayne. Declaration of independence. I'm going to do that. She's my wife. We'll talk about it later. But, uh... <laughs> Declaration of Independence. I remember learning about this as a student, thinking, why was it necessary? We were already fighting the British. The war had already started, so why did they have to come together and write a declaration? But if you look at why they did it, they did it because they wanted people to know why they were doing what they were doing. Not only the people in America, but in the world, to know why they were fighting this revolution. You know, in the same way we talk about discovering, demonstrating, and declaring, we can demonstrate and do a lot with our lives. But as we'll look at tonight, the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ, it requires our declaration, telling the world why. Again, last weekend, we talked about discovering truth and demonstrating truth, taking that huge step from knowing something to obeying it, from discovering it to demonstrating it in your life. And that is an important step. But you can podcast that at this point. Tonight we're going to talk about demonstrating and declaring. Taking the step to declaring something. And the biggest text we're going to look at tonight is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Which says, keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. Another translation says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Because one without the other ultimately will be useless. We talked last week a lot about watching our life and watching our doctrine. Not only discovering truth, but demonstrating it through obedience in our life. Not just knowing the way, but going the way. And when we talked about going the way, we talked about these 12 pathways, these 12 disciplines on the screens, because those take you somewhere as you're following Christ. That will fuel your faith. And why is this important? Because when we try to show people the way, it helps when we don't just know the way, but we're also going the way. You know, there's a big difference between a, a travel agent and a tour guide. Both are important, but the expectation of a travel agent is they'll tell you how to have a great trip, they'll explain where to go, and then they leave it up to you. And that can be incredibly helpful, but a tour guide doesn't just show you where to go, he goes with you. The church needs more tour guides, more people who don't just say, they don't just know the way and want to show the way, but they're actively going the way. You know, Paul's words and his letters to different people in the New Testament, telling them how to live their lives spiritually, it carried a weight because he could say, hey, follow me as I'm following Christ already. Again, these 12 pathways, this is how we follow Christ. And some of us, we want to climb on our soapbox when we haven't opened up this toolbox, these 12 pathways, right? We're called to open these up. As we talked about last week, 2 Peter 1.3 says, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We need to open this toolbox before we go to step on our soapbox and declare. We need to watch our lives. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You know, last week we talked about how knowing is good, but knowing isn't enough. We as the church, we know a lot spiritually. We do. We know a lot, but we've got spiritually obese Christians because we won't walk it out. We don't apply it. And then we throw our weight around in our culture saying, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Then you look at surveys, people in the church, and they'll tell us that we're no better at debt, no better at consumerism, 
No better at relationships, no better at marriage, no better at lust. Because we're masters at listening. As we talked about last week, we got to take that step from conviction to change. To, from knowing and discovering truth to demonstrating it with our lives. You know, when I used to have cable, I, I don't have cable no more, but I used to flip through, right? And you get to Comedy Central, some of these shows where, like, Christianity is the punchline. And I would think, that's terrible. But in a way, we've earned that. Because Jesus said, hey, you're called to be salt and light, but when you lose your saltiness, you're good for nothing but being trampled on. We've lost our saltiness. We're content with knowledge, but we're, we need to pursue wisdom. You know, again, I got saved when I was 21, so fresh out of William & Mary, I'm, I'm going to City Life. Fred becomes the pastor two years in, and I remember the first time he broke down the difference between knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, and it rocked my world because I, I went to William & Mary. I grew up in the church and, and knew the Bible, but I didn't understand the Bible. I didn't walk in wisdom. Again, these three things, knowledge, understanding, wisdom. Knowledge is identifying what it says. I know what the Bible said. I had knowledge of the Bible my entire life. My parents raised me in the church. But understanding is comprehending what it means. What does this mean to me, to my life? And then wisdom is letting it inform my actions. You know, wise people aren't wise just because of what they know. They're wise because they make wise decisions. That's what makes somebody wise. I had a lot of knowledge in my youth. Again, I was raised in church, but I didn't learn to walk in wisdom until much later in life. I had a history teacher in high school, though, where she would give us a list of, we'll say 40, right, events, people, battles, whatever. And she would tell us, we knew it was coming every test. You had to identify it. You had to give it significance. You had to say what it was, but then you had to say, why does this matter? Why, why are we even studying this? Like, why is this significant? Why are we learning about this? Why does it resonate with us? You know, we're called to do the same and step past knowledge into understanding and wisdom with Scripture. Again, wisdom goes beyond just knowledge and understanding to obedience. And how do I, how do I walk this out in life? The wisdom that comes from the Bible, it teaches us to obey the two greatest commands. Love God and love your neighbor. And that's why it's important when we read 1 Corinthians 8.1, it says, hey, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's what we should be doing as we walk as we follow Christ, building people up. I've been reading through Job this week. Anybody reading through Job this year? It's fun. It's a doozy. It's a lot of conversation, a lot of back and forth. And early on, though, in Job 6, verse 26, Job says something that, that hit me. as I'd never highlighted it or underlined it before, but reading through the Bible again, he says in Job 6, verse 26, he says, Do you think your words are convincing when they disregard my cries of desperation? You know, too often, like Job's friends, we can speak into situations not out of love or care for the people involved, but so our voice can be heard. Again, I've been reading through Job, and I think it's in Job 22, where one of them responds. He's like, should I continue to wait now that you all are silent? No, I need to speak my, speak my mind. I need to say my piece. It's like, I must speak to find relief, so let me give my answers. I think a lot of people think that before they post nowadays. Thousands of years later, we're just like, I got I to gotta release this. I got to unleash this. And I, even here, he says, the spirit within me urges me on. Like, I'm just, even to make it spiritual, like, I got to say what I need to say. But as we see in Job 6.26, your opinions, void of empathy, 
will return void of any fruit. No matter how well-informed they are, how well-intentioned they are, you don't care for somebody. They're not going to care about what you're declaring. If you declare, but that person knows you don't care, they're not going to care about whatever you have to declare. As 1 Corinthians 13 says, without love, all our truths, all the things we say, all the songs we sing, they're a gong and a clanging cymbal. I got to wear earplugs when I got on Facebook sometime because that's all I hear is gongs and clanging cymbals. Because Facebook, if you're anything like me, it's loaded with believers that are harsh, insensitive, opinionated, and sometimes downright hurtful. And when you see those people or maybe you see the person on the corner on a soapbox with his megaphone berating people, the people that showed up at Radford University last week saying you deserve hell with signs, right? You see those people and you're like, I know I don't want to be like that. And that seems extreme. So then we can begin to think that Christianity involves three groups of people. You've got the fanatics who are overpassionate. They're overbearing. You've got the minimalist Christians, the hypocrites that believe it, but they don't really act on it. So we want to find a happy medium, one that's not too lax, but that's not too passionate. But you got to realize those Facebook fanatics, those megaphone maniacs, whatever you want to call them, they merely paint themselves as passionate about the gospel. Because when you're committed to a gospel that says we weren't good enough, we'll never be good enough, but the blood of Christ covers us, that's humbling. It's profoundly humbling. The truth is they aren't committed enough to the gospel of grace. You know, in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 in the message version, it says, but sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. You know, Jesus, who knew it all, he wasn't harsh. He wasn't insensitive, overbearing, or opinionated. Jesus Christ was humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, and compassionate. And he was harsh at times. He laid down the law at times, but that was to those people who called themselves Christians or of religious leaders who weren't showing love. They were overbearing and insensitive. See, Jesus came in grace and truth. It's sad when we think, and we told the story of Gandhi weeks ago, people that are interested in Christianity, but then they meet people that are nothing like Jesus and they lose their interest, who don't demonstrate a life that follows in his footsteps. You know, I don't expect people that don't believe in Christ to behave and operate like they do. I don't get mad at unbelievers for acting like people who don't believe. I get mad at believers who live like unbelievers. Jesus didn't get mad at unbelievers. He got mad at the religious who knew the book of law like the back of their hands, but it didn't affect the way they lived or loved on people. You want to be salt in life and light. Live as true to your beliefs as those people that get you worked up live to theirs. Demonstrate what you believe in your life as much as they demonstrate what they believe through theirs. It's important that we discover truth. It's important that we demonstrate truth. But we also need to declare truth. But come on, when you demonstrate that truth with your life, you better be de declaring it with your mouth. And as you declare it with your mouth, you better be demonstrating it with your life. We need to watch our life and our doctrine closely, as Paul says. So I just want to jump to declaring. This declaration of faith that we're called to, and we are called to it. You know, the three paragraphs preceding 1 Timothy 4.16, there's three paragraphs. The first is the dangers of false teaching. The second is the call to remember the good teaching that we've been taught. And then the third is this command to teach. And maybe you would say, look, Paul's writing to Timothy. He's a pastor. He's a leader at a church. So he's, he's called to teach. I'm not 
called to preach and teach in that way. But again, you go back to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, make disciples and teach them to do everything I've commanded you to do. That's to the church. That's to us. It's our call. It's our commission. But you know, there's a quote that I think many people can quote probably before they can quote any of the Great Commission, and that's this one. Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. How many of you heard that quote before? Right? How many of you guys remember the days when Facebook had like the quotes on the, your first page, like your profile page? It was like at the top, your favorite quotes, because we used to care about that apparently. MySpace, everybody had a quote. The aim, when you went away, you would just throw a quote up, and then that was like your away status. All of that. You guys remember any of your favorite quotes? I, I quote some Gladiator on my wall. Strength and honor. What we do today echoes in eternity. Nobody. No, like, quotes you loved. Michael, thank you. <laughs> where's, where's Nate? Oh, he's not here. Anyways. Who else? Any quotes? Yes, that's good. People don't care. Sorry, I ain't going to try to repeat it. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. It's like what we were just talking about. Wayne. Common sense isn't. Get you. <laughs> I was going to be up here for five minutes just thinking until I figured it out. Anybody else got riddles? <laughs> Anthony. <laughs> Commanded on a good note. Just kidding. <laughs> but we love quotes, right? Throw them on mugs, put them on T-shirts, put them in calendars with pretty pictures. We like quotes. I like to put quotes in my sermons. I like to do two things. Scriptures, amen, right? Yeah, preach from this. But then quotes. And I like to know, like, if I say a bunch of nonsense that sinks in with nobody, that at least I've hit you with the word and I've hit you with some certified nuggets of wisdom. We love quotes. But quotes are also funny. Because people can get misquoted. Like, even after service tonight, I'll probably get on Twitter or Facebook, and there's been times where I'm like, I said that? Like, <laughs> that came out of my mouth? Or I know that was in my notes, but it didn't look like that. But sometimes it's like, you know, that's actually better than what I would have said. So let's let that lie, right? It's like the, uh, Steph and I were on our sixth year anniversary trip and reflecting on our marriage, and there's this quote by, or at least attributed to Walt Whitman that says, we were together I forget the rest. And just that beautiful picture of, you know, like, whatever we did, cool. But the fact that we did it together is what makes it beautiful and meaningful and all that. But what's funny is that quote, he never said that. It's like a paraphrase of one of his poems, but it's actually better than the paraphrase of, like, six different lines. So, but that's the problem with quotes. When the person that we attributed to didn't actually say it, like that Abe Lincoln quote, be careful what you read on the Internet, right? You just don't know. Did they actually say it? Like this quote by Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. That's who we attribute it to, but none of his disciples or biographers ever attributed it to him. None of his writings does it show up. But in light of everything we just talked about, demonstrating the truth we believe, we can appreciate this sentiment behind this quote, to live it out to demonstrate it, and in light of saying things like talk is cheap or actions speak louder than words, it rings true. But we don't live according to popular sayings. <laughs> we live according to the Bible. 
And the Great Commission doesn't say to make disciples by playing charades. It says make disciples by teaching. I think our hope when we quote this, and I used to have this on my Facebook wall, right? I was a, I was a young believer. I was like, I love this quote. This is beautiful. And my hope was if I'm over here living it, then I don't have to go over there and teach it. Like if I'm over here demonstrating it, just doing me and doing it well according to Scripture, then I don't have to go over there and share or, or, or step out of my bubble of comfort. Let's be real. And then when necessary, I'll use words. But that's a false choice. It's a choice that the Bible doesn't give us. The world desperately needs both from us. To pit one against the other is a dumb dichotomy, like straight out of our summer series, big enough for both. Your faith needs to be big enough for both. Demonstration and declaration. Paul says, hey, watch your life and your doctrine. Keep a close watch on how you live and what you teach. And what's funny is if you look at Francis of Assisi, he taught a lot. Up to five villages in one day he would travel to and preach. That exhausts me just talking about it. Apparently words were necessary. But then if you think, all right, well, if anybody could have preached the perfect sermon with their lives and not had to teach, certainly would have been Jesus, this this man who lived in perfect holiness and righteousness. And yet we see Jesus at seemingly every opportunity, preaching and teaching. Because he knows full well what we read in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing the word. I love the message version of, of Romans 10, 17. It says, before you trust, you have to listen. But unless Christ's word is preached, there's nothing to listen to. People won't learn to trust the saving work of Jesus Christ and believe in the gospel just by watching us do life and not cuss, not go to rate our movies, and whatever it is we do, which are all good things, but they're not going to learn the gospel through that. I love this quote by Ed Stetzer. He says, the gospel is not a habit, but history. It's not habit, it's history. What he's saying is the gospel isn't something we'll ever become by disciplines where somebody can just, oh, I know the gospel because I looked at their life. No, it's, it's a moment in history, and it changes all of history. The saving work of Jesus isn't something we can do or, or demonstrate through disciplines. It needs to be declared. It needs to be announced. That's why it's called the good news. <laughs> But not unlike these people who get misquoted and wrong things get attributed to them. You look at our culture and a lot of weird things get tied to Jesus. Ideas, hatred. The world needs us in grace and truth to declare the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel. And to bring it all the way back full circle tonight, you look at Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah. Again, if you've never read these books, I don't know what you're doing with your life. I actually talked to a guy a couple weeks ago, and he was like, yeah, I don't really do the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament guy. And, of course, as a pastor, I want to slap him, right? But uh, as a pastor, I've also, you know, tried to work on self-control. Like, do you brush the top of your mouth and not the bottom? Do you put deodorant in one armpit and not the other? Like, what is wrong with you? You wear one side. Why don't you read both Testaments? He was like, I don't really do the Old Testament. I'm, I'm a New Testament guy. What is wrong with you? What am I talking about? Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they're like two of my favorite books. If you haven't read them, all that to say, if you haven't read Ezra and Nehemiah, read them this week. Nehemiah, in terms of leadership, is amazing. Probably the best book, in my opinion. You got all the stuff that teaches you in the New Testament, but Nehemiah, he lives it out. And in Nehemiah 8, Ezra's still around. These books are interwoven together. And in Nehemiah 8, Ezra didn't act out God's law. He used words. He used a lot of them. 
It says that he and these other guys, they taught from early morning until noon, teaching. And it says the people listened intently. My favorite verse from this entire passage is Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. It says, they read from the book of law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping people understand each passage. I love to reflect on that verse as I get to preach or teach or share because they wanted people to have knowledge and understanding so that they could walk in wisdom. And this perspective, it, it sparked a revival. But you get to the last chapter of Nehemiah. It's funny, I was taking notes as I read through Nehemiah uh, this year, and there's so many just leadership nuggets. I'm putting them all down in my journal. And then finally at the end, the end of Nehemiah, they've declared this. They've sworn an oath to obey it. And there's a bunch of guys sinning, disobeying that same law. And Nehemiah essentially busts some heads. He said he pulled some hair and beat on some guys. And I'm like, wow, leadership note number 10, right? Y'all watch out. Better shave your heads or I'm going to come for you. Losing, I'm just losing my track. I'm just going off on these wild tangents. But at the end of Nehemiah, you see people breaking that same law that he had just read and they just sworn to obey. But is that Nehemiah's fault? Is that on him? Is that on Ezra? Is Ezra a failure because they didn't obey? No. And in the same way, when you share your faith and somebody doesn't take it and run with it, it's not your fault. It's on them. In all the years of ministry, it's the most frustrating and yet freeing thing that I experienced. I can't make the decision for somebody. If somebody's starving and you make a plate of delicious food and put it right in front of them and you say, eat this, and they don't eat it, it's not your fault. You did what you could. If somebody can't hit a ball, right, slow pitch softball, some of us last year could not even hit one of those. But if you throw that, if, if I throw it right over the plate, slow, perfect spot, and you don't even swing the bat, that's not on me. That's on you. I mean, there are times where I'd be talking to people and I'm like, I just wish I could, like, Jedi mind trick and be like, this is the truth you're looking for. Like, this is for you. This is what you need. But if they don't, they don't take it and run with it. That's not on me. And it's not on you. You don't fail when you share the gospel, you share the good news, and people don't respond. You fail when you know you're commissioned, you know you're called to declare, and you don't do it. When you live in silence. Martin Luther King Jr. said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. What matters more than the gospel? What matters more than the work of the cross? What matters more than the good news? What matters more than the salvation and hope we have? Nothing. And maybe again you say, well, I see you, you're up here quoting priests, right? These scholars from the Old Testament, you're quoting one pastor to another. But again, you don't need an ordination to share your faith. We're already commissioned. We're already called. You might not do it from a pulpit. You might do it from your porch. You might not do it from a microphone. You might do it over coffee. But we're all called to declare the wonders of him who brought us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. But just some practical steps. These are stupid practical. Like you might even just say, what on earth? But hey, this is how we walk it out. <laughs> As you declare... As you walk this out, as you share your heart to people, as you say, hey, this is why I have the hope I have. The first, share empathy. Practice empathy. Listen. Listen. <laughs> Understand where they're coming from. Care. Again, care before you declare. People aren't projects. They're precious. You know, these people that we might even see as our enemy who just live completely different than we are, they aren't our enemy. They're victims of the enemy. 
think sometimes we strap on our helmet of salvation and we're ready to spear somebody with the truth when, no, we're, we're called to help them up off the turf because the enemy's brought them down. We've all stumbled. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Those are people that God loves. Not our enemy. We battle not against flesh. We battle not against blood. Practice empathy. Second, this is a bombshell. Share it outside the church. Be prepared to share your faith wherever your feet take you. You look at Jesus Christ going from point A to point B. A lot of these passages are, well, Jesus was on his way to Jericho. And on his way from point A to point B, somebody cries out. And he stops, shows compassion, shows empathy, and ministers to them. How often in my life, under the tyranny of a to-do list or going from point A to point B, do I miss opportunities to share the hope of salvation? Often. (laughs) Often. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says, if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. I love the next phrase because sometimes a lot of people forget this. Do this in a gentle and respectful way, right? If someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Do this in a gentle and respectful way. Love that verse. But two things to remember as we're called to share our faith outside the church. You're uniquely shaped. And I think we all grasp this. We love this because it speaks to our purpose. We've got a calling and a destiny because we are unique. But you're also uniquely placed. You've been placed in your neighborhood. You've been placed here in this region. You've been placed at your job. You've been placed at your kid's soccer practice by a sovereign God who's called us to declare. It's not by accident. We don't like that one as much because it speaks to our work here and now. But we're called to share the good news outside the church. And then also, lastly, share it inside the church. Because you know what? Sometimes, as we're busy, we do life, we need somebody to just remind us of the goodness of God of the gospel. That's why we encourage you, go to the men's retreat, hit pause, come together with some other men, hit pause, go to that woman's brunch, and share the goodness of God. Living in a connected culture of scriptural encouragement is is not just a good idea, it's commanded. Again, we're commanded multiple times in the Bible, encourage one another. He's not talking about, hey, I like a haircut. Hey, you make a good casserole. He's talking about like encouraging people based on scripture. Like, I see how God's grace is working in your life. or I I see how you're in a rough spot, but, hey, God is still reigning over that circumstance or constantly pointing to the cross. We need people in our lives who do that. And, man, you want to feel equipped to go out into the world and share your faith? Start sharing what God is doing among the people in the church. But even on that, can we stop with this idea that I have to somehow be good enough to share my faith? Yes, discover truth, dig deep. Yes, the next step should be that we take that truth and we try to obey it and operate it in our lives, and there's the fruit of that truth, but perfection is not a qualification for declaration. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to work it out. The gospel of grace doesn't speak about becoming good enough to come to the cross, right? You don't have to get yourself together to experience grace. You don't have to be perfect in the same way to share of that grace. Yes, you should be discovering. Yes, you should be demonstrating but perfection is, is not some qualification for you to share your faith. If I waited until I felt qualified or good enough to preach from this pulpit, you would not have a pastor. You'd be looking for a pastor. And if the people in the church, they wait until they feel like they've got their faith down 100% to share it, nobody in the church would be sharing. Or they're liars and they think they've got their faith down, but that's a whole other sermon for another time. <laughs> but you know what? I come to this pulpit knowing that if God's called me to do it, he's going to see me through it. 
It's not about perfection or authority. Because you know what? We talk about the Great Commission. How did Jesus preface the Great Commission? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he follows that, right? And it doesn't, one thing we know, it doesn't even matter what follows that, what's next, what he asks. It's not going to fail. It doesn't matter how daunting or impossible, whatever he follows that up with, because this is Jesus. And when he talks about his authority, this is the guy who, who cursed a fig tree and it died. This is a guy who said, hey, go away sickness, and people were healed. This is the guy who raised somebody from the dead. So when he says, I give you my authority, what he's saying is about to happen is not going to fail. It's going to happen. It's happening. The question is, will I be a part of it? Will I be a part of this great commission? Will I step into a life of declaration? Not just knowing the way and not just going the way, and those are important, but we're not just called to a marathon race with some hurdles, right? We're called to a group race where we cross the finish line with one another in the church. If I could have the worship team come up. I've shared this before. There's two C's, not the letter C, I'm talking about bodies of water. <laughs> two C's that are prominent in the Gospels. First is the Dead Sea. It's ten times saltier than the ocean. Hear about the Dead Sea, what do you think about? Floating on the water. You can float any, drive a car out there, probably float, right? It's just dead, the Dead Sea. Ten times saltier than the ocean, but because of that, nothing can live in it. There's no life, no abundance of plant life or animal life. And not far from the Dead Sea is the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, it's like the Dead Sea in the fact that it receives water from the Jordan River. But the Sea of Galilee is full of rich marine life and plants. It's got so many different kinds of fish that it's supporting fishermen in the gospel. There's so, it teems with life, the Sea of Galilee. And you ask why? It's the same region, same climate. Why is one so different from the other? You see, the Jordan River, it flows into the Sea of Galilee and then out of it keeps it healthy and vibrant. The Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, but there's no outlet. It's so far below sea level that no water leaves it. It's become too full of minerals and it's unfit for life. You know, constant intake without any outflow, it leads to Dead Seas. And spiritually, constant intake with any, without any outflow or declaration, it can lead to a dead faith. Because we're called not just to discover, we're called not just to demonstrate, but we've been called and commanded in the Great Commission in verses like 1 Peter 2, 9, to declare, to share the hope we have. There should be fruit of declaration in your life as you follow Christ, an outflow of declaration. I love Psalm 107, verse 2 that I read this week. This is the New Living Translation. It says, has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others he has redeemed you from your enemies. Again, discovering God's truth is good demonstrating his truth should be a, a very important goal in our life. It's one of the hardest steps in life, but at some point we have to take the step from discovering and demonstrating to declaring, sharing the hope that we have. You know, if we could stand tonight, we're going to go back into worship. We're going to sing, God, I look to you, but if you look to God right now and you know he's looking at your life and you know he sees, maybe he sees an empty seat. There's no water flowing into it. There's no intake because you haven't been studying, observing, discovering, haven't been pursuing in the word and in prayer. Maybe that's you tonight. There's actually no inflow to provide any outflow. But maybe, and I'd bet more commonly, as God looks down on us, there's a lot of just dead seas. 
There's a lot of intake. There's not a whole lot of declaration, not a whole lot of sharing, not a whole lot of outflow. And tonight, if either one of those are you, you're empty because there's no inflow or you're like the Dead Sea because there's no outflow. And you know, day by day, you're missing those opportunities that God has set up to be a witness, be a light, and be salt and declare. If that's you tonight, then before we go into worship, I simply want to pray for you. Just ask to raise your hand where you're at. God, if we're honest before you, I think we all know we can do a little bit better. Being a witness, proclaiming the goodness of the one who brought us out of darkness into your wonderful light. Lord God, I thank you that you've given us purpose and calling and destiny and that a part of that is discovering and learning to demonstrate the truth of your word, God. But I pray that we would never forget your great commission. It's a part of our call to love you and then love our neighbor. Anthony was even just sharing on the anniversary of 9-11 this idea that no greater love can anyone show than to lay down his life for a friend. God, how can we have friends that where we don't share what you did for us? God, the love you demonstrated, the love you showed, Lord. God, I pray that you would just awaken us, not just to the commission, God, but to your spirit. God, that goes with us and is in us. Gave the early church boldness and courage, Lord God. God, fill us again tonight. Help us to become more aware of your presence. God, again, I think more of us would step into these these moments of purpose and calling to to share if we just knew that everything was going to go perfectly. Lord God, but help us to remember regardless of what happens, it's our obedience that matters. And that you go before us and your goodness and mercy follow us and you're in us. God, I pray that you would continue to equip us as a church to reach this region and make a declaration. We're not just doing life here, but, but why? why you're worthy of coming together every week to praise, why you're worthy of going to to life groups to learn more because of your son, the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that it covers us with grace. God, it also calls us forward into our purpose and our destiny, Lord. But God, we look to you tonight. God, we say where we lack faith, give us faith. Where we're dealing with unbelief, stir up more faith, Lord God. God, we look to you tonight. We have a massive calling and purpose both as a church and as individuals but we aren't overwhelmed because we know who reigns we know who sits on the throne and it's you and we worship you in this moment